the world's most exciting podcast, home of borders, language, culture, and here he is, New York Times best-selling author and National Radio Hall of Fame inductee, Michael Savage. I'm Michael Savage, host of the Savage Nation podcast, home of borders, language, and culture. Hear my new podcast each week as I speak with top guests from around the world. Right now, we have over 700 shows in our library featuring interviews with world leaders, scientists, faith teachers, and more, including President Donald Trump, Prime Minister of Israel Ehud Barak, Edward Teller, the father of the hydrogen bomb, Jerry Falwell, and so much more conversations and commentary you cannot find anywhere else. Other guests have included Samuel Cohen, the father of the neutron bomb, Breitbart's Alex Marlowe, the great author Peter Schweitzer, Colonel Douglas McGregor. Be here or be nowhere. The Savage Nation podcast. Catch the Michael Savage podcast on all podcast platforms every Tuesday and every Friday. So, billionaire Jeff Bezos was sitting in that rocket all his own with his brother and two friends and went to outer space for a few minutes today. Uh, This is actually easy to make fun of and find fault with, and I will do that. But first, uh, it's actually very, very cool. He has the means. He wants to make space available to everybody someday, and he went himself. And, uh, you know, he paid for it, and uh, why not? And it all worked. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, command engine start, 2, 1. Too long, uh, we were borrowing rides from the Russians to get into outer space, and now NASA's back at it. Jeff Bezos is uh, taking people to space, and I think it's good. I think it's about time. And when he got there, this was a very short mission. He took off from Van Horn, Texas, which is in West Texas, and basically landed, I think, in the same spot. Um, But he got to outer space, and he made the most of it. I mean, look at this. They're having fun throwing Skittles at each other. And look at the size of the windows. That is actually pretty cool. Um, this, they didn't have to do a lot of experiments. Really, the experiments, as far as I could tell, uh, making sure the vehicle worked. And they were pretty confident of that, but they're practicing and practicing, and someday maybe he'll get us to the moon. Uh, the big rocket that propelled them up 
that came down itself. And this is really cool. It comes down vertically. Uh, it seems like science fiction from the 1950s, but this is the way they've chosen to do it. It's environmentally sound, and it's also very, very cool. Uh, a little while later, the capsule itself came down to Earth. Pretty neat. And here he comes, the billionaire with the cowboy hat, uh, his brother and friends. I mean, hey, if you got it, flaunt it. Hugs his mom. Um, yeah, look, I got my problems with uh, Jeff, but we'll get to those. In the meantime, this was pretty nice. And he did something very classy. He named that vessel for Alan Shepard. Alan Shepard was the first American astronaut into uh, outer space back in 1961. And he named the ship for him, and I think that is awfully, awfully cool. And during the post-flight press conference today, he talked about Alan Shepard and acknowledged Alan's daughters who were in the audience. We are honored today to have uh, Alan Shepard's daughters, Laura and Julie. Could you stand up just briefly so we could say... Very nice, very, very nice. Alan Shepard, first American into space, and later would walk on the moon in Apollo 14 in 1971. There is a, he was the oldest man on the moon, by the way, at the age of 47. I don't know, could, uh, could Jeff Bezos be dropping a little bit of a hint that maybe one day he'll go to the moon? I would if I were him, <laughs> I really would. Hey, by the way, today is the 52nd anniversary of Apollo 11 landing on the moon. There is Buzz Aldrin uh, next to the flag. Very, very cool. All right, now back to the good stuff of what happened today, and there was some negative stuff. That's coming. His brother, Mark, uh, they're very close, and listen to what they brought up in the capsule with him. I think it's very nice. We had the opportunity to bring with us, uh, it was actually on loan from uh, the Explorers Club, uh, we were able to fly with a piece of canvas from the Wright Flyer. Um, so the, the plane that the Wright brothers flew, um, we brought a piece of that canvas with us, um, which was really powerful, as well as um, a bronze uh, medallion uh, that was made from uh, the first uh, hot air balloon flight um, in 1783, which was the first time um, man ever uh, you know, left the earth and controlled flight. So we're very thrilled to be able to bring both of those along with us. I think that's really nice. And guess what? Their mom was there. Uh, and they gave her a very special gift. Watch this. I wore this necklace, and it is a uh, blue origin feather. And I wore it up into space. And now it's for you. That's nice. And the other thing I kind of like here is that ultimately he wants to make space available to a lot of people. And these are the baby steps that you have to take if that'll happen someday. So all is great so far in my book. But then, but then being a billionaire, being a left leaning billionaire, he got a little bit carried away. And as this thing was wrapping up, he made a speech. We live in a world where sometimes, instead of disagreeing with someone's ideas, we question their character or their motives. 
And guess what? After you do that, it's pretty damn hard to work with that person. And really what we should always be doing is questioning ideas. Not the person. Ad hominem attacks have been around a long time, but they don't work. And they've been amplified by social media. We need unifiers and not vilifiers. All right. Who decides who the unifiers are? Who decides who the vilifiers are? I think he's on a slippery slope. But it's his day, and he gets to say what he wants. Listen to this. The Courage and Civility Award is a $100 million award so that the awardee, the recipient, can give $100 million to the charities, the nonprofits of their choice. And these people, these are people who have demonstrated courage. By the way, it's easy to be courageous, but also mean. Try being courageous and civil. Try being courageous and a unifier. That's harder and way better and makes the world better. All right, $100 million, wow, to somebody who unifies, is not a vilifier. And the award goes to? The first uh, Courage and Civility Award goes to Van Jones. Van, come on up. <laughs> Van Jones. Van Jones, CNN commentator. Uh, this guy is as left as they come. He is as nasty as they come. He was fired by Obama for being so nasty. He's a 9-11 truther at one point in his career, thinking that it was an inside job. This is the guy who gets a $100 million reward for being civil, the, civil, the civility award. Um, most famously... Van Jones um, had something of a nervous breakdown on election night in 2016. He gets very emotional, but first, he gets very, very mean and accusatory of the American people. We've talked about race. I mean, we've talked about everything but race tonight. We've talked about income. We've talked about class. We've talked about region. We haven't talked about race. This was a white lash. This was a white lash against a changing country. It was a white lash against a black president in part. And that's the part where the pain comes. Um, a white lash? That sounds racist. And it sounds like nothing to do with the 2016 election. A lot of people thought Hillary Clinton was a liar. A lot of people were, they wanted to shock the system. It wasn't a white lash, but that's the way he sees, Mr. Civility sees the world. Um, and there have been other examples. Again, this man just got a hundred million dollars for being civil. Look at this. How were, how were the Republicans able to push things through when they had less than 60 senators, but somehow we can't? <laughs> well, the answer to that is they're <laughs> Hey, how about that? The crowd loved it when he called Republicans a holes. This is the man. This is Mr. Civility. Really. <laughs> but there's more going on here. This is not just Amazon picking the wrong guy for their Courage and Civility Award. There's something else going on that has to do with this crazy moment we're in. Take a look at those astronauts who went to space today, okay? And again, a great day for them, and I'm happy for them, really. But Amazon, in a way, has an optics problem. They have a situation here.
It's four white people. Now, I don't care, but they care. Oh, boy, do they care. That's all corporate America cares about these days. What you look like, where you're from, who, all that nonsense. But it's woke, it's Amazon, so what do they do? You can't have just four astronauts and not, you write a great big fat check for $100 million to the nicest guy who happens to be a person of color you can find. It's the ultimate in virtue signaling. And I'll prove it to you. Amazon's policies internally and externally are beyond woke, beyond weird, and uh, even though we had a great day today, some of this stuff is truly hurting the country. We'll be back with that. Have you checked out the Newsmax Daily Podcast with me, Rob Carson? You get daily news, insightful commentary, and believe it or not, comedy. Check it out wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts or at NewsmaxTV.com slash podcast. joins us, one of the greatest broadcasters in history, one of the greatest writers in history. He is the host of the No Spin Zone on BillOReilly.com. His latest book, uh, Killing the Mob, The Fight Against Organized Crime in America. Of course, uh, top of the charts and the upcoming co-host of the Trump History Tour. This thing is really going to make history. Bill, great to see you again. How are you? Thanks for having me in, Greg. I appreciate it. I'm doing all right. How excited are you about the winter and I don't think everybody knows about this yet. You and Donald Trump on stage, various venues throughout the country. You're interviewing before live audiences. It sounds fantastic. Well, we're going to do four shows to start to see if he punches me in the uh, nose. And uh, if he likes the shows, maybe we'll do more. We're going to open up the 11th in Lauderdale and the 12th in Orlando, then the 18th in Houston, the 19th in Dallas, Texas. And uh, it's a history uh tour it's not going to be a rally it's not going to be relitigating the election it's going to be what really happened when you were president how'd you get that vax how about putin putin speak english what do you what do you talk to him about on the phone to you straight guy you know that kind of stuff which has never been reported so i hope we make history and uh i'm looking forward to it uh we announced it a few weeks ago um, and we already have $7 million in ticket sales. So without any marketing at all. So that's pretty good. And, and we hope people will, uh, will enjoy the program. And Florida, not a bad place to be in December, Greg. You know that. Yes, indeed. Uh, and Texas is pretty nice, too. Bill, how, you've interviewed him many times. You can get information out of him that a lot of us can't. Um, because, you know, he answers the question he wants to answer. How do you make him answer what you, the information you want? How do you get it out of him? Because he knows how to deflect, turn, and talk about something else. He does it all the time. Well, I make fun of him <laughs> if he does that. <clears throat> That's how I do it. So I did a test interview with him two weeks ago um, in uh, New Jersey. And we have that posted on BillOReilly.com if anybody wants to see it. And it's very direct. And he answered all the questions but one. I said to him, how does it feel to be the most controversial president in the history of this country? And he goes, oh, I'm not the most. I said, you're not? Who might that be? And of course, he is. But he didn't want to really go there. But I pushed him a little bit. And I got, you know, 
the answer that I thought the uh, audience would appreciate, and that his whole life is a war, that people attack him every day. We have that in common. Uh, people attack me every day. And uh, his job, as he sees it, is to fight back. And so those are the kinds of things we're going to get into in the history tour, but it is going to be all history. No hyperbola. And if he doesn't answer the question, I'll very gently say, Mr. President, you did not answer the question. And I think he will. He knows me for a long time. He knows that I'm going to try to keep him on track. And you know what? There's going to be a live audience right there. So if he evades, you'll be able to bring him back. And we know he's a candid guy and he loves to talk, especially to you. Hey, speaking of hyperbole, have you seen Biden and the way he's talking lately? You know, the, the Georgia, the Texas uh, legislature, worse thing than the Civil War. I mean, over the top and seemingly lost and not getting called out on it very much at all. Well, my lead story tonight on the No Spin News is comparing what President Biden is doing to what Vladimir Putin does in Russia. <clears throat> it's almost identical. I want people to watch it, but I'll just give you a, a sample. So no matter what you say to Putin, no matter what a journalist says, once in a while he does an interview, but not, not much, you can say, um, you know, there's overwhelming evidence that Russia tried to interfere in the presidential election in America in 2020. And Putin's going to go, no, we didn't. We didn't. He's just going to deny everything. <clears throat> no matter what you have, no matter what evidence you put forth, Putin's going to go, no, no, no. That's what Biden's doing now. So if you were to say to him, the border's a colossal mess, and there's only one person who made it that way, and that's you, which is absolutely true. There's no two sides to the story. It's a colossal blunder. He'd go, no, no, it's, it's not bad. I put Kamala in charge. She's going to solve it all. No, no. What did he do yesterday on inflation, Biden? Oh, we were expecting it. Ah, this is nothing. Don't worry about the 5.5% drop in a month. We knew it was going to happen. Well, I went back and I checked the White House Budget Office. Their prediction for June was inflation at 2%, not 5.5. Five. So if Biden's experts predicted it, who would those experts be? But as you said, the press is never going to hold him accountable because the press has so much invested in him after the debacle of the Trump coverage. You know, if I could ask a question of Putin, you know what I'd ask him? If you wanted to change the results of the election so much, why did you only spend $100,000? You read the Mueller report, that's how much they spent, $100,000, $150,000 on Facebook ads. It's such a small amount of money. And uh, I, I'd love to know the answer to that. Hey, Bill, I think you're going to make history. I think you're going to learn a lot of history. This is going to be fabulous and uh, good luck. How can people get tickets? Through your website? The easiest way is to go to BillOReilly.com and you punch up Sunrise, Florida, or Orlando, Florida, or Dallas, or Houston. Bang, you're right over to the box office. You'll get good seats. Uh, the premium seats, though, are sold out. Hmm. So the VIP tickets, sold out. It's an amazing phenomenon. But anyway, Greg, I always appreciate talking to you. Thanks for having me in. And keep on uh, doing a good job, okay? Right. Thank you, Bill, very, very much. Thanks for everything. Okay, great.
We'll, right. To be continued, and we'll be right back. Hunter Biden. Oh, boy. Where do we begin? Where does it end? We are still learning all kinds of stuff about his life and career. And what the heck was he doing for Joe Biden, his dad? Uh, a lot, apparently. I'd like to bring in John Solomon, one of the most important and successful investigative journalists in the country, founder of Just the News and a Newsmax contributor. Uh, John Solomon, welcome back to Newsmax, uh, my show. How are you? Great to be with you. Yeah, great to be with you, Greg. Uh, thanks again. So, look, uh, you haven't covered new emails. Um, it appears as though Hunter Biden was somehow in the loop when his father was vice president. Take it away. What's happening here? Yeah, let's all remember all the legal pain and trouble and acrimony we had when Hillary Clinton, we discovered, had a private email address. Well, tonight at Just the News, we are reporting that Joe Biden had his own private email address, a Gmail account, and he used it on occasion to forward information from the State Department, his official advisors and uh, people in the office of the vice president, to his son, Hunter Biden. The one uh, really specific episode, there was an American hostage or prisoner in Turkey in 2014. Uh, the State Department embassy in Istanbul had learned way in advance of the public that this man, this American, was about to be released. And uh, Joe Biden forwards that information from the State Department through his private email account to Hunter Biden, the sort of actionable intelligence that most people would love to get if you've got foreign business deals like Hunter Biden. You can start trading on that information early. So for the first time, we are certain that Joe Biden has a private email address, and we know he used it to communicate with his son, in some cases, forwarding information from the United States government to his son through that private channel. Wow. Robin Ware 456 at Gmail. That's Joe Biden's private email. Who knows That's if it's it. still in effect? I'm going to shoot him a message right now. See what happens. <laughs> uh, but a couple of things here. Um, the email chain, I look through it. You've seen it, of course. It's not classified. There's no indication. In nope. fact, it says specifically right. it's unclassified, you said. so. That's right. There's that to consider. Yep. Also, he's there using is. Gmail which suggests that, well, it's a Gmail server, not his own personal server, like yep. the Hillary Clinton situation, right? Yep. The, the, here's where the law is important. Uh, anytime you conduct any amount of a government business as a, as a government official, you have an obligation to preserve the records, even if you move them onto your private email account. So while these information isn't classified, it is government information, it is government conduct. And the question that we now have for Joe Biden is, did you do the right thing and preserve the emails? Remember, Hillary Clinton did preserve the emails. They had to be gotten by the State Department Inspector General and the FBI after the fact. Uh, and so there's a big question tonight about whether Joe Biden did that. So far, the Biden White House, Jen Psaki, have not given us an answer. But we have talked to many people who did know of the existence of that email and did use it during the Obama years. So, um, and by the way, look, I know this was, I'm not, talking about Hillary's situation because we know that she was up to something. But a lot of people do yeah. have multiple email addresses. You know, you can have a, a Just the yeah. News email account and an AOL account. Um, I have a Gmail absolutely. account. There's a Newsmax account, which I don't check as much as I should. People do that <laughs> because sometimes it's easier to check the private email. There is the chance, and there's all kinds of stuff on the Bidens, but, but there is a chance that this is innocuous. Then again, maybe not. But there is a chance it's innocuous, correct? Well, listen, it's innocuous in the sense that, you know, at this point, we don't see any classified information. So there's not a SEPA issue going on. 
But remember the storyline the Bidens gave us three years ago. I never did anything to help my son. Well, when you're forwarding State Department information to him about a non-public event of a man being released by Turkish authorities, you're providing useful information, vice versa. There's another email where Hunter Biden goes to his dad and says, I want to get this guy as a detailee at the Treasury Department. Uh, exactly the sort of conflicts of interest that we were told didn't exist. Now we know that Hunter Biden was asking favors of his father. Uh, and so the ethics issues don't go away just because you don't have a top secret email sure. transmitted across Gmail. No, totally. And if you are going to do stuff like that, you would at least do it on a private email. Now, this guy, Martin O'Connor, uh, an American who found himself, he bought a sword in a bazaar in Turkey and then had, yeah. he's on the right there. He had trouble getting it out of the country, a customs issue, and he was thrown yeah. in jail. Now, we've seen movies about Turkish prisons. It's a very bad place to it's be. Scary. Very bad. Yeah. So it would make sense that the American government, you know, would be moving to help a guy like Martin O'Connor, pretty oh, prominent. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, the only thing is that should, should the vice president have had the judgment to say, you know what, this is embassy business, sensitive international information about what a, a foreign government's about to do. I shouldn't be forwarding it to my son on an insecure Gmail account. But listen, this was embassy information. This was intelligence. The FBI, uh, the, uh, the embassy had learned from his lawyer and was forwarding to the State Department and somehow it gets to Hunter Biden. Uh, the optics and the ethics of this are still a wide open question. Yeah. And it also, it disputes what the Joe Biden keeps telling us, I never did anything for my son. Well, we know he did a lot. We know he met with some of his son's business affiliates in China, Mexico, in Ukraine. And now he's forwarding State Department insider information using a private email account. I think the Americans are smart enough to know what's going on here. So, um, by the way, if you are an American in a Turkish prison, I don't know if it gives you a warm and fuzzy <laughs> that Hunter Biden, no, it we have the picture of him in the bathtub enjoying a a Marlboro or something like that. I mean, why this guy would be in the loop in 2014 on a di diplomatic situation in Turkey. Yeah, that is pretty extraordinary. And we need the answers and you're going to get them. You're so good. John Solomon, award-winning investigative Thanks, journalist Greg. from Just the News. And welcome to Newsmax again. Thank you. And to be continued, Pleasure we'll be, be right here. back. You bet. Bye-bye. can say is that the fake news just doesn't get it, do they? But the fake news is crazy about Amazon. Hey, I order stuff from there all the time, maybe too much. Amazon has come up with some really, I think, surreal guidelines on how to submit content to them. Everybody wants to make a movie, TV show, Hollywood is full of them, but you probably know somebody who wants to do this. Submit a script to Amazon, get it made into a TV show, make a million bucks. Sounds great. But here are the standards that Amazon is preaching. You ready? We expect creative teams to make a concerted effort to hire above-the-line staff, directors, writers, producers, and or creators who represent the identity groups depicted on screen. We will aim for 30% of the above-the-line staff to meet this goal in 2021, this aspirational goal will increase to 50% by 2024. All right, so the behind-the-scenes people have to look like the characters on screen. Um, this sounds like a recipe for segregation. It sounds like a recipe for something not good. One of my favorite movies of all time happens to be The Godfather. You ever seen it? Oh, by the way, 
I don't think they meant anything by this, but it's all white people in the movie. Does that mean only white people should be or should have been behind the scenes? Of course not. I don't like this kind of stuff. Next from Amazon. Are LGBTQ plus characters in overly feminized or masculine occupations? For example, are gay characters shown in appearance-related professions, fashion, entertainment, etc.? Are they excluded from occupations in education, healthcare, or civil service, including police or fire department? See, that's bad if you don't have a gay person as a firefighter. Look, they should really stay out of it. Let the storytellers tell the story. They want the virtue signaling in the story. That's bad. They're actually, I think, trying to influence reality and we're not there yet. Does that make sense? Take a look at this and you tell me. Let me know via our website. Are there specific opportunities to include LGBTQ plus romantic partners in the story? Even if you are not able to depict the romantic partner, could your characters refer to their relational partners in the script? Um, it's getting complicated and getting weird. Just throw in some gay couples for the sake of it. What if it's... Uh, my life story or your life story. Maybe you have that, maybe you don't. Maybe I have it, maybe I don't. Why are they doing this? Why are they pushing this? Next, please, if you don't mind. Are there opportunities to show underrepresented groups, including non-binary people, people of different religions, and people with disabilities in romantic relationships that counter typical narratives? Um, I don't know. They. You see, this is kind of ridiculous. Again, let the writers write. Hmm? One more that I think is very insulting, very insulting. Uh, we urge content creators focusing on comedy, humor, or satire to engage with their material in deep ways. Ask the fundamental question, are you the right person to tell this story and or these jokes? Here's the deal. Here's the message. If you are a white male, stay out of the content creating business when it comes to Amazon, which is one of the number one content providers now in the universe. Be sure that your character descriptions do not evoke stereotypes related to women of color. Avoid use of the terms exotic, feisty, sassy, and other words stereotypically used to refer to underrepresented women. Uh, Amazon, maybe this is your problem. I mean, we don't have this problem. And you're, what, what are they saying? Let me tell you, let me show you some of my favorite people. One I've met, one I haven't met. Um, Imam, have you ever heard of her? Great model from Somalia. Uh, there she is on the right. She was married to David Bowie. She strikes me as exotic. I've been a fan since I was a kid. That's Wendy Williams on the left. I've introduced Wendy on TV, on stage. I know her in real life, and she's a sassy person. Have I just made some sort of mistake? Have I violated some weird code by using that word? I don't think so. That's an ordinary, wholesome thing to say about an extraordinary person, right? I hope you agree. I'm kind of out on a limb here. I'm getting some weird looks, but do you want to live your life by these kinds of guidelines? Amazon is more important than half the governments in the world, and they're trying to change the way we think. All right. I also want to show you, you've heard so much about the threat from white supremacists. The FBI says it's the number one threat in the country. Um, that's not my experience. I have not seen that. But I have seen a lot of this, the threat from the left. As a, a white man, 
um, who has had privileges that, that others could not depend on or take for granted. Uh, I've clearly had advantages over the, the course of my life. I'm increasingly embarrassed to be a white male these days. I mean, what a, <laughs> light of what I see of my other white males saying. But we don't realize sometimes, especially as a white person, how impactful, how offensive they are. As a white man who walks through life with that privilege, walk in these shoes. Walk in these communities. Where the hell am I going? And guess what? That's what happens. That's my white privilege. I own it. It's fine. Yeah. All right. White people apologizing for being white. Now, here's the part about, um, well, again, you've heard about the threat from the white supremacists and white people, but uh, the left, Antifa, they seem to be on the news more than the white supremacists, actually. They talk about them, but who do we see most of the time? This is what happens when Negroes don't read. <laughs> he's, he's the token Negro of the of the Trump administration. Kill her three-year-old child. You are a subhuman. We're done being polite. So, um, I've, have you seen that before? Have you seen that compressed like that? I've seen so much of the replay and replay of January 6th, but this, this is actually happening all over the country. Something else, you know, you have questions about the fairness of the 2020 election. I have questions about the fairness of the 2020 election. You know who else had a lot of questions about the fairness of the 2020 election before the election? Democrats. I continue to think that our voting machines are too vulnerable. Our researchers have repeatedly de demonstrated that ballot recording machines and other voting systems are susceptible to tampering. Even hackers with limited prior knowledge, tools, and resources are able to breach voting machines in a matter of minutes. In 2018, electronic voting machines in Georgia and Texas deleted votes for certain candidates or switched votes from one candidate to another. The biggest seller of voting machines is doing something that violates Cybersecurity 101, directing that you install remote access software, which would make a machine like that, you know, a magnet for fraudsters and hackers. These are Democrats, all Democrats. Pretty astounding, isn't it? Hmm? And they've made this kind of speech almost illegal for the other side post-election. Got to show you this. Dr. Fauci had another skirmish with uh, Senator Rand Paul. You know how I feel about Dr. Fauci's uh, credibility zero. Uh, and Rand Paul, a physician, very smart, and uh, he's been so passionate about uh, COVID. And he mentioned the Wuhan lab going way back, and now it really looks that way. Check out their exchange today on Capitol Hill. Viruses that in nature only infect animals were manipulated in the Wuhan lab to gain the function of infecting humans. Dr. Fauci, knowing that it is a crime to lie to Congress, do you wish to retract your statement of May 11th where you claimed that the NIH never funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan? I have never lied before the Congress, and I do not retract that statement. 
Wait, Let me take, finish. You take an animal virus and you increase its yeah. transmissibility to humans. Right. You're saying that's not gain of function. Yeah, that is correct. And and Senator Paul, you do not know what you are talking about, quite frankly. And I want to say that officially. This is your definition that you guys wrote. It says that scientific research that increases the transmissibility among mammals is gain of function. They took animal viruses that only occur in animals and they increased their transmissibility to humans. How you can say that is not gain of function. It is not. It's a dance and you're dancing around this because you're trying to obscure responsibility for four million people dying around the world okay. from a pandemic. If the point that you are making is that the, the, the grant that was funded as a sub-award from EcoHealth to Wuhan created SARS-CoV-2. That's where you are getting. Let me finish. We don't know. Well, we don't wait know a minute. If it didn't I come can, from the lab, but all you, the evidence is pointing that it came from the lab. You, and there will be responsibility for those who funded the right. lab, including yourself. I totally this committee resent, will allow the witness to. Respond. I totally resent the lie that you are now propagating. No one's saying those it, viruses it is, caused it. It no is, one is molecularly those viruses caused the pandemic. What we're alleging is that gain of function research was going on in that lab, and NIH funded it. That you is can't not get away from it. It meets your definition, and you are obfuscating the truth. Those viruses are molecularly impossible no one's to result they are. No in SARS-CoV-2. Caused the pandemic. Paul, we're saying they are gain of function yeah, viruses because they were they're animal not. viruses that became more transmissible in human, and you funded. It. And you, you admit the truth. And you implying. Senator Paul, your time has expired, and I will allow witnesses right. who come before this committee to respond. And, and you are implying that what we did was responsible for the deaths of individual. I totally resent that. Have and if anybody is lying been. here, Senator, it is you. No. You, Fauci, you. He's confused Americans and I believe misled Americans long enough. Don't you? And thank you, Senator Paul. We'll be right back. This is the book I am reading right now, and it is fantastic. It is First Friends, the powerful, unsung, and unelected people who shaped our presidents by Gary Ginsburg, a former Clinton White House lawyer. And uh, these guys, these presidents, they have friends. They talk. We don't know about those conversations and all kinds of things can happen. Gary Ginsburg, welcome to Newsmax. Thanks for being here. How are you? Very well. Thank you for having me, Greg. So, Gary, um, how did you how did you land on this topic? It's unique. And you weren't necessarily a, a Bill Clinton friend. You worked for him. How did this capture you? I would, I would not say I was a friend of Bill Clinton's. I was, you know, somebody who uh, worked on his campaign, worked in his administration, but not a friend. But, you know, really since grade school, Greg, I've been fascinated by the American presidency. And when I got older, I worked on presidential campaigns and then, as I say, served with Clinton. And I came to watch some really remarkable close friendships between leaders and their best friends. Like in 1984, I worked for Gary Hart. And I saw the Hollywood actor Warren Beatty fly in for important events. And he'd say, stop talking and acting like a politician, Gary. And Hart would listen in a way that nobody else uh, he would listen to, other than you know, no staffers could speak to him that way. And I saw Vernon Jordan's role with Bill Clinton and how he was the only one around Clinton with equal stature and didn't need or want anything from the presidents. So you know, I saw an entirely different kind of friendship between a leader and his best friend than he had with staff. And 
I went then to look at presidential literature to see if there had been anything written about the first friend in history, and there's been nothing. There have been books about first chefs, first wives, first sons, first butlers, but nothing on the first friend. So I thought I would fill that niche with this book. That's terrific. And by the way, these friends, for the most part, go way back. But when you're president, you attract new friends. Were there any presidents that you found where someone, you know, relatively recently entered the circle? Once they became powerful, they became a friend and the president started listening to that person? Yes. And the greatest example of that is Woodrow Wilson in 1911, 1912. He's, he's the governor of New Jersey running for president. He's lost his best friend in 1907, a, a professor at Princeton. He, he described the loss as one of the biggest blows of his life, in addition to not getting the League of Nations through the Senate. It was that bad. So in 1911, he's running for president. He needs a friend. At the same time, Colonel House, Edward House, is looking for, quote, the man and the opportunity. He's a Texan who wants to operate on a national and international stage. They meet over a meeting at 4 o'clock in New York in November of 1911. Within an hour, they're in love with each other. And a year later, Colonel House is the most important person in President-elect Wilson's orbit. He runs presidential personnel. He runs uh, many domestic issues. But most importantly, for seven years, he's the most important diplomat in the Wilson administration. He's more important than the Secretary of State, more important than anybody else. Wow. Gary, how about this? Um, was there ever a presidential friend who was notoriously giving the president bad advice and driving everybody else crazy on the staff? Uh, not in my book. Um, the closest that I would say that that, that, where that comes into play is with Bibi Rebozo and Nixon, mm. only in the sense that Bibi Rebozo was so loyal, was so loving to Richard Nixon, was really his constant companion. He was closer to Nixon than Pat, the daughters. When he becomes president, Nixon relies on Bibi to help him with some of his most nefarious acts. And Bibi, rather than saying, no, Dick, you're better than this, you need to appeal to your better angels, he basically aids and abets some of his worst acts, including taking a $100,000 bribe from Howard Hughes, which I say in my book, I think leads to the Watergate break-in at the DNC, and then ultimately to his impeachment and resignation. Wow. Uh, well, look, this is great stuff. Hey, very quickly, John Kennedy and a guy named David Ornsby Gore who actually I haven't heard of. I've heard of other presidential friends that he had, but just tell us if you could in 20 seconds, who was this guy and what impact did he have on JFK? He was the British ambassador to the United States, ironically, the most important foreign policy advisor to the president in the final two years of his administration, playing a pivotal role in both the Cuban Missile Crisis and then passing the limited nuclear test ban treaty in 1963. I'd never heard of him either until I wrote the book. Excellent, excellent, excellent. And it's so original and nobody wrote it and you did. So we've got a book on this topic. Let's put the cover up again. First Friends, the powerful, unsung and unelected people who shaped our presidents uh, available wherever you get your books, wherever books are sold. Gary Ginsburg, we appreciate it so much. Many thanks. Thank you so much, Greg. And we'll be right back. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone. 
and one we intend to win, and the others too. Have a good evening, everyone. Good night.